You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Who's here? It's always nice when you're here, Mark. Welcome. Uh, so our promise to you is to start on time. I think we're almost on time. And to get you out at 1 o'clock. Uh, we're really pleased that you're here, and we're pleased that you're here to hear John Elderfield. John Elderfield, as you all know, is a leading authority on modern art. He's an independent curator, an art historian, a past curator at the Museum of Modern Art, where he's now uh, curator emeritus of painting and sculpture. Uh, while he was at the MoMA, he directed more than 20 exhibitions, including Fauvism and its Affinities in 1976, Kurt Schwitters in 1985, the great de Kooning retrospective in 2011, and a truly memorable Matisse retrospective uh, in 1992 where I saw Jeff Wall meet Louise Bourgeois. It was a great art moment. Uh, we invited John to come and speak about, during the great upheaval, thinking, well, that's his area of thinking, what happens around the First World War, what happens in the 20th century, but as all great curators do, he's just going to do his thing. So with great pleasure, uh, the wonderful, charming, and articulate John Elderfield. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, you'll see Bob Dylan's name up there with um, Matisse and de Kooning. And actually, I want to, in trying to explain what um, the subject of this lecture will be, um, I actually want to start with, I think it was in 1965, that um, Dylan was interviewed in uh, San Francisco, and there's actually a recording easily available of this wonderful interview um, where people prodded him to say what his work was about, and he kept it being extremely evasive. And then somebody finally said, come on, Bob, you know, what are your songs about? And he said, well, some are about two minutes. <laughs> Some are about four minutes. There's something which is actually even 11 minutes. Um, so this talk's going to be about 40 minutes. Um, and it's going to be about uh, not the wisdom of the kind of evasiveness that Bob Dylan showed, but that um, it's actually useful um, not to expect to know too much about works of art. Um, now, I guess I should be clear from the beginning that I'm not actually opposed to uh, information. Um, I think that you know, we all get a lot of gallery press releases which are telling us uh, in detail about what we should be looking at. 
And I, at times, have to confess a little impatience with object labels in uh, museums. But if they're about information, I think it's actually great. And um, when I was in the galleries yesterday, I actually would have loved to have seen, which wasn't there, an object label which explained to me what the nine Netherlandish um, proverbs were uh, in the Bruegel painting. But I was equally pleased that the um, Van Goyen great view of Reynen actually had an object label which explained 10 of the salient features of it. And the one which really interested me was um, that the brothel in the painting was identifiable by the sign of a swan. And I never knew about this at all. And of course, it's going to deeply influence my appreciation of Swan Lake. <laughs> um, but this kind of information is great because it provokes curiosity. Um, um, I will later on refer to a um, label in the um, Guggenheim exhibition which does exactly the opposite. Um, but I think that when it gets to certain kinds of information, <clears throat> um, certain kinds of opinions about meaning, we can actually end up approaching works of art in the wrong way. And for me, one uh, interesting example of this is when the French writer and philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre visited MoMA in the um, um, 50s to see a Mondrian show. He went around with the curator and um, said, to the curator, well, this is all very good, but Mondrian doesn't pose any questions. And the curator very smartly said, oh, you mean like questions about poverty, sex, and the meaning of life? <laughs> um, and um, I, you know, I think that there's a limit to a kind of seeking after knowledge. Um, and really my kind of basic text on this um, was produced almost exactly 150 years before Dylan did his brush off in San Francisco when another young poet called John Keats um, wrote a letter to his brothers about having been walking with a civil servant and amateur scholar called Charles Dilke. And um, this man, Keats said, I've got to read this, cannot feel he has a personal identity unless he has made up his mind about everything. And it was this encounter that led Keats to formulate his famous idea of negative capability. A negative capability he defined as when a man or a woman is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any intractable reaching after fact and reason. It was important, he insisted, not to become 
over-preoccupied with knowing. And indeed, he said, you'll cut yourself off from what art can bring you if you are incapable of remaining content with half-knowledge. So why should the works of Henri Matisse, William de Kooning, Dylan, and other classic modernists matter to us today? And I have two reasons. First, the great works of art create the conditions for not knowing what precisely they are about. And second, for artists, not knowing precisely where they are going is as important as not precisely knowing what they are saying. Um, however, really, in honor of Ontario, I want to begin with um, uh, a work of art which is simple, but I think actually great, which has relevance to both of these points. And it's a song recorded in 1966 by an artist who was born 130 kilometers north of where we are today in a town called Aurelia, Ontario. Um, I think I need a show of hands about who, who this is going to be. Excellent. There we go. So may we um, listen to In the Early Morning Rain? In the early morning rain With a dollar in my hand With an aching in my heart And my pockets full of sand I'm a long way from home And I miss my loved ones so In the early morning rain Out on runway number nine, big 707 set to go. But I'm stuck here in the grass where the cold wind blows. Now the liquor tasted good, and the women all were fast. Well, there she goes, my friend Well, she's rolling down at last Hear the mighty engines roar See the silver bird on high She's away and westward bound Far above the clouds she'll fly yeah, the morning rain don't fall And the sun always shines She'll be flying over my home In about three hours' time This old airport's got me down It's no earthly good to me Cause I'm stuck here on the ground As 
cold and drunk as I can be You can't jump a jet plane Like you can't a freight train So I best be on the way In the early morning rain You can't jump a jet plane Like you can't a freight train So I best be on the way In the early morning rain Um, <clears throat> we know um, um, from the artist that um, he composed it a couple of years before he recorded it and he was remembering seeing somebody off at LA airport. Um, but we're not told who or why. And I think it's reasonable to assume that he intended to allude not only to the events that he describes, but by referring to the freight train to a kind of early age and a kind of down-the-luck hobo in a railroad yard waiting to board a freight train, and therefore to allude to earlier ballads than the one we were listening to. But how much more, we're not really told. Um, T.S. Eliot once said that the perpetual task of poetry is to make old things new, not necessarily to make new things. Um, but simply to say that this is a wonderful remake of an old ballad doesn't, I think, go very far to explain a complex of feelings that this song induces, feelings of absence, of loneliness, of wishing for belonging, for transportation by desire, desiring of emotive transportation. And this, of course, is the point. We can't precisely say what this song is about, although we can make this kind of catalog of things which we think about our uh, reactions. Now, um, the earliest of traditional ballads often take travel as their subject matter, journeys told in lines, and tend to reflect transitions between or confluences of traditions and civilizations, and this is well known. And of course, early modernist art was similarly preoccupied with borderlines and most frequently the borderline that divided um, the modern city from an imagined Arcadia. Imagined because, of course, it never existed. And we think most obviously of uh, Paul Gauguin, but say Franz Marc's animals in the painting from the Guggenheim are also a city dweller's imagination of some paradisal garden that only existed in myth, while Delaunay's Eiffel Tower is an urban structure animated as if some primal striding creature from the past. But is this what these paintings are about? I think 
it is among their intimations, but not the only one. And the Delaunay in particular is asking us to surrender any single interpretation the longer we look at it. And I don't think this is necessarily because it's the more abstract of the two. Now, true, the literalism of the mark tends to deaden the imagination. I personally think it's a rather dopey painting. Um, and um, so actually, hoping to be disabused of that feeling, did read the object label and um, was astonished to read that, I'm quoting here, the cow may have been a stand-in for the artist's wife. <laughs> Come on. Um, if so, it sounds like grounds for divorce to me. But um, the abstraction per se, of course, is not what makes the Delaunay the better painting. And abstraction per se, I don't think is the great achievement of early modernism. But what is rather is the realization of artists that if a subject is radically transformed, recognition of it becomes correspondingly extended in time. A very perceptive art historian, um, suddenly no longer with us, called Michael Podro, once said that this is not because we seek the subject despite the complications of the painting, but because recognition and complication are each furthered by the other, each serves the other. In short, painting is actually made to stop you jumping to conclusions. And like the Lightfoot song, it creates the condition for our not knowing what they're precisely about and provides what Keats called the intense pleasure of not knowing, made possible if we are content with what he called half-knowledge. Um, this, I hasten to say, does not mean lacking curiosity and being uninterested in knowledge. To the contrary, I think it means being as curious and as knowledgeable as possible in order to discover what is unknowable. And hence Keats's fellow poet, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, um, in a wonderful annotation recommended to all readers of books, um, what I think is just an, a great thing. He recommended the overcoming of the habit of deriving your whole pleasure from the book itself, which can only be affected by excitement of curiosity or of some passion. Force yourself, he said, to reflect on what you read paragraph by paragraph, and in short time you will derive your pleasure, an ample pleasure at least, from the activity of your own mind. All else is picture sunshine. That wonderful phrase, picture sunshine, it's what falls upon us 
without any exercise of curiosity or passion on our part. Um, and what he writes about books is, I think, certainly true of our pictures. So I want to exercise some curiosity and passion on a not particularly sunny painting in this exhibition called The Italian Woman um, by Henri Matisse, which is the, the one on the left of these two images. Um, this is one of about 25 paintings that Matisse made in the years 1916-17 of a model, an Italian model, known to us only as Lorette. Um, um, and he, she appears in many different guises, and he painted her in many different styles, sometimes quite straightforwardly, sometimes not. Um, and it's actually hard to know what to make of her appearance and personality. We know anecdotally that um, Matisse's teenage son thought she was extremely beautiful and had to be kept out of the studio when she was undressing. <laughs> um, but it's hard to know what actually Matisse know, thinks about her. And I think that at least knowing that there are 25 very different paintings tells us that he is not attempting to create a definitive portrait of the model. Um, and I think that from the portrait alone, from the Italian woman alone, I think we recognize this as well. Um, but to say that this is an abstraction of her seems to me a, a hopelessly inadequate description uh, because actually a personality is conveyed and depicted for all the oddity of the representation. And it's, it's very weird. Um, Matisse seems to have pulled the surface, the epidermis of the surface, and draped it over the shoulder of the model. So the model is at once set into the surface, and the surface helps to shape the appearance of the model. That's to say he seems to have excavated into and fissured the paint film, which we read as the surface of the painting, although it is, of course, on top of the literal surface of the painting, and appeared to have molded a large flap of that film into a shawl-like feature. And I think by deliminating, delaminating the paint membrane, um, Matisse kind of helps to open out the painting um, in front of our gaze. Um, So what are we to make of it? What, what, you know, what, are we, what would our object label be? Um, would it be asking us to ponder whether the painting is about availability and unavailability, about 
display and protection from visibility, about sight and touch, about attraction and destruction. And we have no way of verifying this because while on the one hand great artists are controlling, um, works of art have constrained meanings. We can't plausibly just make any claim about what a picture is about. But I think the great pictures refuse to be pinned down. Samuel Beckett famously said of James Joyce that he's not writing about something, he's writing something. Um, but this only gets us so far. Um, it helps, I think, to see some similar paintings by Matisse, and by similar I mean paintings that are like and unlike the Italian woman. And here are two, they um, done a little earlier from 1914, uh, Woman on a High Stool, which is in the MoMA collection, and the portrait of Yvonne Landsberg, which is in the collection of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And these works, too, may be thought to show the depicted image alternatively rising through the marked surface towards us and falling back into it, keeping the painting in flux in our perception of it and then poised in a state of these contrasting implications. But what is common to these two paintings and the Italian woman, which I think is this, only serves to emphasize how each is an utterly independent creation. If we can say of, Mati of each of these works by Matisse that he resists making a finalizing statement while he is registering the formation of a statement, then that kind of resistance to finalization may be said to be what motivates the urge to continually make more and more similar but different works. And this isn't, I think, a matter of a program. Um, it is because he worked on instinct without a program. The great literary critic Christopher Ricks um, makes the same point about Bob Dylan. And he quotes Dylan saying, um, as you get older, you get smarter. And that can hinder you because you try to gain control over, you try to gain control over the creative process. Creativity is not like a freight train going down the tracks. It's something that has to be caressed and treated with a great deal of respect. If your mind is intellectually in the way, it will stop you. You've got to program your brain not to think too much. What a wonderful sentence. You've got to program your brain not to think too much. Um, you've got to rely on instinct. Going back a few years with Matisse, um, this is uh, music. Um, the great large painting in the Hermitage Museum and a photograph of it in process. While it was in process, um, a visitor came to his studio 
and um, I think rather cheekily suggested to him that he, he neglected intelligence in the making of his paintings. And he um, very coolly replied, quite so. I believe only in instinct. It's the purest, most invulnerable thing, the true life spring of artistic activity. I said earlier that the corollary of not precisely knowing what you're doing is not knowing precisely where you are going. So working instinctively means not setting a goal and realizing it. And Matisse's process was not so much a continuum in which an image was realized as an iterative and sometimes reiterative series of propositions as to what the image might comprise. And he, so he worked in states and each single state in the creation of a painting became an adventure without a known goal. And I think that this is really important, um, not only intrinsically for him, because this instinctive and amendatory way of working initiated what became the standard method of making modern paintings including paintings, um, perhaps most especially including paintings, which are fully abstract modern paintings that bear no other obvious resemblance to Matisse's work. And I'm thinking, for example, abstract expressionist paintings by Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning. Both Pollock and de Kooning were improvisers as were the other giants of their generation, Rothko, Motherwell, Newman, Still. But de Kooning was different to Pollock and these other artists. They worked to varying degrees towards signature abstract styles, which comprised fields of color without separable areas of interest, or if with separable areas of interest, ones which the eye passed over very quickly. Um, de Kooning didn't do this. And he always began, always, and often ended with figurative imagery. And I think it's, it's a little hard to read these uh, images at this uh, scale, and I think particularly for anyone near the back. But um, the Pollock's Autumn Rhythm um, uh, is in continuous motion. There's really no separable areas of interest. And, and de Kooning's, although seemingly as much an all-over painting, the eye is continually being stopped by things which look like figural elements. Um, now, the other part which I find important um, and distinctive about de Kooning is that while his paintings are, of course, recognizably his, uh, each painting of a particular period is a distinctively individual creation. And um, <coughs> the um, famous Woman One at MoMA um, followed 
three or four years later by a painting called Interchanged, uh, which we think of as an abstract painting and the other as a figurative painting. But I think that one recognizes the extraordinary similarity between the two. And this is a separate subject, although an allied one, I think invites us to recognize that the words abstract and representational don't necessarily make a lot of sense in um, a context like this. When does, I mean, is an individual mark abstract and then it becomes representational when we can see a figure or, um, or is it still an abstract mark as well as a representational mark? Um, but throughout his period, um, he produced numerous signature styles um, and felt that allegiance to any established style was confining. And he didn't work, like Matisse, um, to something closed and perfected. And particularly toward the end, he spoke very clearly of his wish to move from relative clarity to definitive ambiguity. And I'm showing here um, a 1985 painting with an uh, uh, infrared image of uh, the underpainting uh, which led to the clarity of um, the later painting. And I think in these lead compositions, they visibly change as one looks at them. An area of white that looks like space will transform into an area of space that looks like volume. A line will turn into a shape. A shape will twist and turn. A detail can resemble a, a leg or an arm or a breast. You see it at the right-hand side. Or then maybe it will go away. Um, he didn't use the word ambiguity, though. He used the word doubt. Um, and doubt, of course, what is what Keats is talking about when speaking of the pleasures of not knowing, about how to gain in pleasure when something is obscure to perception and can only be known imperfectly. And he said, it's just like a beautiful thing is made more beautiful when it's reflected or seen in mist. And it's, of course, another but related subject that Keats was very much influenced in these ideas by a critic called William Hazlitt, who was perhaps most famously known as one of the earliest critics in support of uh, Turner's work. He was the person who came up with the wonderful formulation of Turner's paintings as being pictures of nothing and very like. Um, we can, in a few cases, with these lead pictures, figure out where they came from um, because they were composed on the basis of earlier drawings. And um, this 1983 painting, we can see 
was based on a much earlier drawing which has a sort of surrealist mirror-like quality of some sort of figures in the room. But um, it's clear that they're not reducible to their sources um, and that forms that are more specific in the drawings have been transformed into forms that resist specific identification. Now, for de Kooning, his attachment to doubt meant wanting to keep himself off balance while he was working. And we heard Dylan earlier saying, to be creative, you've got to program your brain not to think too much. And if your mind is in the way, it will stop you. And de Kooning worked very hard at this. Um, we know that he would change a will decision at the last moment. As the brush was about to hit the canvas, he would deliberately shift it off. He would scrape off a finished passage to discover a more potent one underneath, or he would paint over a potent one because it looked ingratiating. He would trace or otherwise transfer an image on a sheet of newspaper, for example, from one work to another. And particularly in drawing, he was always trying to keep himself off balance. And he would draw with his eyes closed. Um, he would draw with a picture turned upside down. He would draw uh, while watching television. He would then paint while he was exhausted or when he was a bit or perhaps more than a bit drunk. Anything to keep himself off balance. Um, in the 40s, he started to speak of slipping. And he had this wonderful phrase called slipping glimpses. Um, and his argument was that we see reality not in um, a cogent picture, but through glances, part seen in one area, part seen in another. And um, um, in one interview, he, in fact, humorously referred to himself as a slipping glimpser. And in, the, in his later years, he actually spoke of the importance of um, being off balance. And of course, this off-balanceness kept his audiences off-balance as well. And what particularly in the early years threw people off balance was when in 1950, after having carried his art to a high level of abstraction, almost abstraction, one recognizes the figuration in excavation, but then he made this extraordinary shift in painting these uh, women pictures, um, which um, um, you know, created um, extraordinarily hostile response. Um, when I did the um, de Kooning show, which um, Matthew referred to, I 
pestered um, Bob Dylan to come and see it with me. And he did, and we walked through the galleries, seeing de Kooning change style from year to year. And uh, after a few galleries, Bob turned to me and he said, so, and I, I won't try and do my imitation of Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, but he said, so why is he doing that? He seems to get good at something and then he changes. And of course, I couldn't help laughing. And, um, and Bob looked at me and said, yeah, I guess that's what I do too. Um, and he did seem most fascinated by this change. And he's not someone who really likes abstract painting very much. And so we went through the show. Then he said, I want to come back and look at the women paintings. And he looked at them and the change. And he said, I think wonderfully, uh, I guess that's when de Kooning went electric. <laughs> so walking out, I told him about the reactions of de Kooning's supporters. Um, uh, most famously, Clem Greenberg, who wrote the very, very best criticism on de Kooning's early work, unquestionably, but who was so thrown by the women paintings that he actually went up to de Kooning and said, you're dead. Um, and um, at which Bob turned to me and he said, you know, you just can't worry about disappointing people. And, um, you know, I think that, hey, you know, this is what the great artists are willing to take, not worrying about disappointing. So let me return briefly to Matisse who in 1917, the year after painting The Italian Woman, abruptly changed his way of painting to a more naturalistic style. And this really is very much symbolized by the relationship between <clears throat> two paintings of an identical size and closely related subject, the piano lesson at MoMA and the music lesson in the Barnes Foundation. Up to this point, Matisse had tended to paint the more naturalistic version first and then the more abstract the version second. But he changed his practice. And the reaction among his avant-garde critics um, was close, actually, to what the reaction of de Kooning's critics was when he painted Woman One, that he'd somehow betrayed his modernism. Um, that um, he had um, stepped away from, you know, being a good uh, modernist artist. I'm sorry. I would like to say it was Bob calling me and saying, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> Um, what, Ma what Matisse said to his critics was, um, when you've achieved what you want to do in a certain area, when you've exploited the possibilities that lie in one direction, you must, when the time comes, change course, search for something new. If I'd continued down the other road, 
which I knew so well, I would have ended up as a mannerist. One must always keep one's eyes, one's feelings fresh. One must follow one's instincts. And I think there's two parts of this. One is, and both relate to taking chances, one, and this is something which Keats wrote about as well, that um, we think of identity as a kind of singleness um, of who we are. But Keats argued that actually a healthy sense of identity was not to be created by a sense of guarding, guarding um, one's identity, one's circumstances, but by risking the absence of a single identity by willing to make these changes. And this, of course, is what uh, Matisse and de Kooning um, did too. But Matisse and de Kooning were different being later artists and working at a time when the historicism of the avant-garde was being established the idea that art advances from style to style in an ever more rigorous manner. And um, de Kooning in 1952 and Matisse in earlier in 1917 um, uh, stepped away from this. Um, de Kooning said art should not have to be a certain way. Style is a fraud. I always felt the Greeks were hiding behind their columns. Um, this, the reactionary strength of power is that it keeps style and things going. So you oppose the power base. Order, de Kooning said, is to be ordered about, and that's the limitation. Beside, you know, one idea is good as another, and it's obvious that art does not progress. All great <coughs> lessons for today. Um, I want to go back to music, and I'm, I'm not going to play this, but I'm just going to read a passage, <coughs> the first stanza of um, a wonderful song which Patti Smith um, recorded in 2004 called My, My Blakeian Year. Um, um, and it begins, in my Blakeian year, I was so disposed toward a mission yet unclear. Advancing pole by pole, fortune breathed into my ear, mouthed a simple ode, one road is paved in gold, one road is just a road. I think um, disposed toward a mission yet unclear should be um, putting big banners above art schools, um, arguing that, um, um, that one does best by going by instinct and without knowing quite where one is going. And I think that this also, of course, takes us back to where we started with Gordon Lightfoot watching a plane take off at LA airport. And I want to conclude by showing a short video clip with In the Early Morning Rain in it, um, uh, which I think is <clears throat> both a wonderfully 
um, mystifying uh, work of art. And it's actually a wonderful example of how works, how art does move forward from artist to artist. And um, <clears throat> I don't want to be um, trying to create undue suspense about this, but um, what, the, what I'm showing, it's actually a dance by Trisha Brown. Uh, I, I find so extraordinarily mysterious and beautiful that I can't quite bring myself to show it and then talk about it. So I want to just say a few words about it and then um, um, show the, the video and then I'll be happy to answer some questions. Now, just as background, um, Lightfoot recorded in the early morning rain in 1966. Four years later, Dylan covered it in his 1970 album called Self Portrait, which should prompt us to ask, is he asking us to see himself as the man in the, uh, in the airport as a self-portrait? Another un unanswerable question. Um, um, I'm not going to play the Dylan version, although we'll hear it not well in this um, video, but it's less lyrical than Lightfoot's and delivered with less affect. <coughs> Nonetheless, I recommend it thoroughly. Anyhow, 30 year, three years after Self-Portrait, that's to say 1973, the dancer, choreographer, and visual artist, Tricia Brown, used the Dylan version as the sound part of a composition which she called Spanish Dance which is what we're going to see. <clears throat> and she described the dance as follows. So if you can imagine this, and then you'll see it. A dancer slowly raises her arms like a Spanish dancer and travels forward in time to Dylan's In the Morning Rain. When dancer A touches up against the back of dancer B, Dancer B slowly raises her arms like a Spanish dancer, and the two travel forward, touching up against the back of dancer C, and so on until they all reach the wall. And there are five dancers altogether, and the dance takes precisely um, the same time as the song takes. And I did ask Trisha Brown whether the song prompted the dance or whether she had a thought of the idea of a sequential Spanish dance and then found the song too much. It was clearly too much urging for knowledge because after a pause she said, yes, it was something like that. Um, but not to be defeated, I asked her how it was possible that the dancers reached the wall at precisely the moment the song ended. And she said, what do you think, John? We practiced. <laughs> um, I've seen this actually performed a few times as well as on the video, and I can't quite explain to myself what it has to do with the song or what it's about. But I think it's something to do with this line of lovely dancers who are 
obedient to their individuality while coming to be collectively connected to each other, like a freight train, um, in the accumulating object of this performance, in line and in step and in tune. And it's a, I think it's just a wonderful unspoken coming together and done so tactfully that I think if one knows you know, the Dylan song before it and the Lightfoot song before it, we have a sense of that um, she, her artistry is touching up against the back of Dylan's, whose artistry was touching up against the back of, of, of Lightfoot's. Um, and it all kind of nudging forward with the kind of corporeal longing and belonging which go back to the um, Lightfoot um, composition. So, Trisha Brown, uh, Spanish dance.
some friends around, have a few drinks, put the music on and try it. <laughs> it's great. I've done that. It's just, there's something so wonderful, transformative about it. Anyhow, um, um, there's a lot, lot more to be said about <clears throat> all these things, and um, I will be, I've run a little later than I should, I think, but uh, if, do we still have time for some questions? Yeah, okay. Hello, uh, Mr. Ellerfield, I loved your uh, presentation. One of the things I found um, extremely revolutionary about some of the comments you made was the way that you detach that binary between figuration and abstraction, especially in your discussion of the Italian woman, and the way, in a sense, that you recuperated it from a kind of Greenbergian narrative of modernism which would have commented on the flatness or the curvilinear design. And you actually reintroduced aspects of carnality, affect, emotion, feeling. Now, I, the, my question for you is, which, and, and those are aspects, emotion and affect have been you know, sort of ignored for so long in so many of these painters that mm -hmm. we see as simply moving towards the, the, the the two-dimensionality and self-criticism of abstract expressionism. So that was a uh, fascinating kind of recuperation that you did in your presentation. Now my question for you is, in 1907, Matisse wrote in Notes of a Painter that for him, painting was not about the facial expressions mm -hmm. or a violent gesture, but rather that the entire surface of the canvas was a means of expression. And so he developed strategies mm -hmm. such as the rhythmical arabesque uh, the flat yep. planes of colors, etc., mm -hmm. to direct our attention all over. Yep. I, I, I will finish. <laughs> so what, in your interpretation of that, did he mean by expression? When he said, the entire surface of my canvas is expressive, what, is the ex what does expression mean there in that sense? Well, I, I think that, um, <clears throat> I think he means more than what he, Matisse, wants to express. Because c clearly, um, um, he, um, by whatever he does, he uh, constrains the meaning from multiple meanings to a kind of range of meaning which he's interested in, which I suppose one can call his expression. Um, but <clears throat> um, um, he's doing something which he then expects the uh, viewer to engage with. And, of course, you know, he made the tactical mistake of, you know, talking about the good armchair as an analogy for this, which um, implies a kind of passivity on behalf of the viewer, or rather that the viewer, the, the painting hits the viewer like Coleridge's um, um, you know, passive sunshine, 
and, and clearly it isn't that. Um, so, um, yeah, that the, with the, I mean, the Italian woman seems almost demonstrative, really, of, um, um, <coughs> how, you know, expression um, is um, articulated through the entire surface and that the surface is, is engaged and that, that what seems to be actually the most expressive element is the way in which this figure seems to be actually wedged into the surface. Although, you know, you know to stand in front of it, of the gallery, you know, it isn't quite that, you know, and, and it's, it's very hard to actually articulate um, the kind of accumulation of dissonant parts which make up this picture that the, um, you know, which includes um, naturalistic representation. And I think it, you know, that, you know, really why you started with this, I, I do feel strongly that the, um, you know, that we are so used to thinking in polarities. And, you know, maybe this is because we're symmetrical people. You know, we have a left hand and a right hand and so on. So it's like, is it abstract or is it representational? And um, a young, youngish artist who um, I know, uh, Cecily Brown, who is always, you know, written about as, oh, she's, you know, working on the boundaries between abstraction and representation, you know, quite rightly points out that, you know, um, any cursive mark made with a brush um, is actually representational. It's just, it's just the way it is. Um, and you can work towards um, a less vivid sense of um, depictive clarity or depictive specificity. But I think that one understands that um, uh, cursive marks um, have a representational uh, function. And conversely, um, um, that um, works which look representational in the sense of being specifically depictive, um, when one spends time with them, they become what um, in polarity would be called abstract. And I think, you know, this has been the kind of, you know, has been, was a dilemma of formless criticism of, um, you know, wanting to recover, say, a painter like Matisse for abstraction by saying, well, he's really abstract. And, um, <clears throat> and let's say, um, um, you know, Clive Bell into the kind of absurdity of pointing to a picture of a crucifixion and saying that significant form you know, and that one, you know, it, <clears throat> and I think we do have to get away from um, that kind of um, dichotomous description, even if, and, and, and perhaps particularly because it allows us to be, you know, to be um, in our response as doubtful as the painting wants us to be. Somebody out there is dying to ask a question, and my invitation to you is to come up and 
uh, talk with John because I said 1 o'clock and it's 1.04. I just want to say three things very quickly. One is to thank all of you for coming and <clears throat> bringing the Art Gallery of Ontario alive. Your presence means a lot to us. You spent an hour with us on a cold Friday afternoon. It's just great. Come back often. Second thing is to thank uh, Maxine Granosky-Gluskin and Ira Gluskin, two great leaders in the volunteer community in Toronto who have helped make this series possible. And lastly, of course, to thank John. And I might say that I was sitting there, I was thinking, why is John Elderfield loved by artists? And he is. And why is he loved by young curators who are looking for their way in the profession? And it's because he's prepared to go on journeys with them. He's prepared to go into their space and to listen. And I just want to say, John, it was a real privilege for all of us to go on a journey with you. So thank you so much. So um, a last word is that when I next come to the AGO, I expect to see Matthew in, uh, as one of five dancers in the Spanish dance. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.